Balance your trading strategy by adding futures. CME Group helps you manage risk and capture opportunities in all market environments. Capitalize on around-the-clock access to highly liquid global futures and options market across all major asset classes. Just visit your online broker and get started. Plug into valuable educational materials and trading tools and see what adding futures can do for you at cmegroup.com slash on the tape. You are listening to On the Tape. I am Dan Nathan. I am joined by Danny Moses. Guy Adami is off this week, but Guy did join me for a conversation earlier in the week with Tommy Vitor. Tommy is a co-founder of Crooked Media and a co-host of Pod Save America and Pod Save the World. We had a great conversation about podcasting. What else? And of course, his outlook for the geopolitical situation and how it might affect the global economy. And of course, we look at it through the lens of our markets. So stick around for that. First things first, let's get to the markets. Danny, how are you, buddy? I'm doing well, man. I'm happy the quarter is coming to an end here. Believe me. This was a crazy quarter for risk assets across the board. We're also going to get to your picks later on. So stick around for the final four. You went what? Three for four last week? Is that what you did, Danny? Four out of the eight games. Yep. That's excellent. All right. So you're continuing your streak. Good thing I did not bet against you in that. But listen, we often look at markets through the lens of the stock market. We often think about performance in those terms. But S&P was down 15% at its lows just a few weeks ago. The NASDAQ was down more than 22%. But the headlines are reading, worst quarter for stocks since Q1 2020. We know what was going on in Q1 2020. But this time around, some of the disconnects in some of these other risk markets are the things that you feel like we should be paying attention to, right? Yeah, this feels like Wiley Coyote and Roadrunner running around and Coyote makes his way onto the cliff edge. He doesn't realize that the cliff's about to fall off and he's just standing there. It just feels that way to me. These movements in commodities, the ag, nickel and oil and NASDAQ, we've had bear markets, bull markets, corrections in all of these categories. And that's a lot of action to take in. So there is a ton of volatility and make no mistake about it. There is damage being done. And I think we will see it in the form of some of these banks that are going to be reporting in mid-April. We'll get into that later, what we're going to be looking for. And so Trust me when there's damage being done. And I just feel like you can't have those type of moves without repercussions. And I believe volatility will remain at a higher elevation from here on out for the foreseeable future, certainly in the second quarter, where I think we're setting up for another volatile quarter. We started our podcast on the tape in mid-January of 2021. And at the time, we were highlighting some of these things that they felt like moments in time, whether they be meme stocks or some of the excitement around crypto or the SPAC issuance or the unprofitable tech IPOs. And at the time, we were all scratching our heads because we really felt like there was something going on there. Now, what happened over the course of the next few quarters was pretty epic. All of those things crashed that we talked about. The one thing that didn't crash until really, January, February of this year, so almost a year later, was the S&P 500 and the NASDAQ. So we were on that trade. The thing that I find really frustrating right now is we had this parabolic move in the S&P and the NASDAQ. They literally went straight up over the last three weeks. So the S&P that was down 15% is only down 3.5% right now as we limp into quarter end. And the NASDAQ that was down 23% or so is only down 8%. And once again, a handful of names are about... 10 stocks are keeping the optics of the stock market intact, despite the fact, to your point that you just made, there's been tons of damage done here. And so I guess when I see that sort of move into quarter end, you just mentioned we're going to get bank earnings. Let me tell you one group of stocks that don't act well, Danny, in the stock market right now, 
are bank stocks. So they're going to kick off earnings season. And think back to January when we kicked off Q4 earnings season. JP Morgan had one of its biggest one-day gaps after earnings since the financial crisis. And that stock has barely recovered here. So I'm just curious, as you think about quarter-end marks and you think about the things in the S&P that don't act well, is that informing your opinion about continued volatility? Now, volatility is one thing, but downward volatility is another thing. Do you think a retest of those March lows are in the cards for Q2? Put it this way. Things that are trading on rational fundamentals. So we talked about the home builders last week. It's obvious. Mortgage rates go up. Construction costs go up. Materials go up. That is a sector that acts like it should. The sectors that don't act like they should are the ones that don't trade on fundamentals, meme stocks and so forth. So you still have this wild retail ride going on. And I'll throw again, crypto into it, which is fine. So you still have a lot of money sloshing around in the market. But the same way that COVID disrupted the supply chain and disrupted in the way that people adjusted to it, I don't think we were ready or we are ready for the implications of what's going on in Ukraine. Yes, maybe Russia settles down a little bit, but let's be clear. The stuff we didn't have to deal with, food that was coming, we were mainly dealing with supply chain and getting products. This has now turned into food, energy, agriculture. That was not the issue. So add those elements to this. I think it brings a whole nother set of challenges into this. And I believe that when we start to see the comparisons, remember 2020 was a nightmare economically. It was a one in a hundred year event. 2021, we started to comp against 20s. Things started to improve in 21. Those numbers look great. We are up against just generically very difficult comps when it comes to economic numbers going forward, earnings number going forward year over year. And I believe that coupled with the Fed's insatiable appetite, what appears to raise rates. And let me just throw in right now, we are now north of a 65% probability of 50 basis points in the early May meeting and another 50 basis points were 65% coming in the June meeting. So amazing to me, Dan, is that somehow the investor community is either not recognizing what that means or don't understand what that might mean. And I'll end with this. We've had a couple of battles here in the last couple of weeks with credit spread. Certain industries are facing it the ones that actually need to sell product to run their businesses, whether it's auto land for securitization or mortgage for securitization, that's just beginning. So you can't have a Fed raising rates, taking liquidity out of the system, stopping to buy mortgage-backed securities, stopping to buy treasuries without impact. So I'll go back a little more, Dan. I pin it down to when China came in to support their stock market several weeks ago. That was actually the low. I believe it was March 9th or 10th or something like that on the S&P. Go back and look. And I want to make one more comment about China. Evergrande hasn't traded in 10 days. It's great when you can freeze nickel and it doesn't trade in these Chinese property stocks. There's now five that are suspended because they can't file their 2021 number. So I guess that's fine. We won't pay attention to that. But that was a big issue, you remember, the end of last year. I also think that's coming back around. Well, of course, we're not going to pay attention to that stuff, Danny. Right. I get it. It's funny. Evergrande, 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 and then it went away. Just so you know, I've been catching a lot of shit on Twitter, and my mom actually joined my trolls. She says that I'm saying exasperate when I mean to say exacerbate. My mom literally called me after Fast Money the other night, and I've had a bunch of people tweet at me. You're exasperated. I am exasperated about my pronunciation of exacerbate, but the truth is I know the difference between the two fucking words, okay, and they don't even sound that much alike, and I never use exasperate, but I do use the word exacerbate, and so is it possible that some of these people are just mishearing me? I think there's a distinct possibility. I'm curious, Amanda, what do you think? I think you're saying exasperate. Really? Fair enough. You're with my mom. All right. Here's a couple of things I wanted to hit really quickly. This was on the Twitter feed of a guy named Ryan Dietrich. He is a strategist over at LPL, Danny. And he was talking about the last 
few times that the S&P 500 has rallied 10% in 10 trading days. And you have to go back to, I think it was April and May of 2020 in the throes of that pandemic. And then you have to go back to periods like the financial crisis, other bear markety sort of periods. But he also gave the caveat that these were not great periods to get bearish. Now, what's different to me about that situation is to your point that the expectations for rate hikes is very different than it was back then. Go back to two years ago, the last really bad Q1 that we had. At the time, the Fed was throwing hundreds of billions of dollars that would end up being trillions of dollars at stimulus, both monetary and then fiscal once Congress joined in. So I think that's what's really different here. And then Dietrich, he's just lighting it up this week on Twitter. He tweeted out that 15 of the last 16 Aprils have been higher for the S&P 500. When you see stats like that, Danny, what does it make you want to do? I can find a pro for every con and a con for every pro. I'm exasperated. Dan, by all this. And I believe the rate move is exacerbating all these things. But anyway, in all seriousness, mortgage refis down 60% and the 30-year mortgage having its largest increase in a one-week period since February 2011, which happened between QA2 and QE3. The reason I mention this is, wake up, everybody. The Fed doesn't have your back this time. There is no precedent for what we're about to see. There's just not. And the market is not cheap. You can have these stocks go crazy, the ones that don't trade on fundamentals, because they never traded on fundamentals to begin with. So you can have this stuff running around, moving up and down. But for every good stat, there's a bad stat, Dan. So let's go back to that, though, because the fundamentals of the handful of stocks that are driving the performance of the market, and it's Microsoft, Apple, Google, Amazon, Tesla, NVIDIA, they're pretty damn good. That's one of the things I'd say is you think about the monopolies they have. You think about the moats that they have. You think about the cash they have. You think about the recurring revenue. And you know what? Some people are making the case for NVIDIA that is becoming more of a recurring revenue situation. And then the lack of cyclicality that you're seeing in some of these semiconductor companies, for instance, the lack of cyclicality that you see in a lot of these businesses that are driving Amazon's. It used to be, oh, well, consumer behavior. Well, AWS is driving a lot of that profitability. And if you look at Google, you used to say, oh, well, advertising is very cyclical, except for the fact that the secular shift towards online advertising is not going anywhere. Apple, I think was really interesting. Just a couple weeks ago, there was a story out that they were going to turn their hardware into iPhones, iPads, that sort of thing, where you're renting them. They're turning in recurring revenue. So the market is appreciating that right now. And if you go back to the first quarter of 2021, when rates started going higher, those were some of the hardest hit stocks. The notion that interest rates were going to go higher, that those stocks had traded a lower multiple. Now those stocks, Apple is unchanged on the year with an S&P down 3.5% and NASDAQ down 8%. So those stocks are keeping the markets here and the fundamentals seem to be pretty good. And I guess I would put a bow on this is that John Butters from FactSet is out with his earnings insight note where he's talking about Q1 strategists cut S&P earnings by a little less than 1%. But it's the first quarterly earnings cut in a while going back to 2020 when we're in the pandemic and they're actually raising estimates for the back half of the year i think consensus right now is 228 you got an s&p either side of 4600 that puts it about 20 times now i think you're in my camp if all of these issues as it relates to commodities as it relates to wages as it relates to supply chain disruptions just stick around there's no way the s&p earnings are going to be 228 there's no way so then your multiple goes up if earnings come down. How do you fix that? The market has to go down. 
Once you get past second quarter into third quarter, the market shifts to 2023 earnings. So if people believe you're going to trough in 22, at least for the next few years, you'll start to use 23. So you make that change. But when I look at things like JP Morgan's downgrade of Procter & Gamble, quote, they expressed concern that second half 22 forecasts for relief and supply chain, labor and other constraints are too optimistic. They talk about resins. They talk about pulp, all the labor, aluminum, transportation. And their top products, remember, are Pampers and Tide and Crest. These are staple products. They think Walmart's the winner from the retail side because consumers will trade down and go to private label and shop at Walmart. That doesn't sound like an economy that's going to be growing to me. I think people need to understand something. The price of oil is not just about what you're paying for gas at the pump. It is seeping its way into everything that we basically deal with. And I know we're going to talk about Restoration Hardware and Friedman, the CEO, who was on his conference call talking about what was going on. And you can bring that up right now. But these people are seeing stuff. They're paying for shipping costs for next year now. These are embedded. So to answer your question in a nutshell, let me go back to what you said at first. Apple's a great company. You can own it. I think the idea, again, if inflation is really running at 14 to 16%, real inflation is running, you can own the stock market and it can be flat for the year and you're down 14 to 16%. You don't want to be in cash. You want to be in things that you think are going to grow over time. And some of those don't necessarily need economic growth to perform. But Dan, I'll say it again. I think there is this tale of retail that gains confidence, loses confidence, chases their tail, comes in and out. And when you look at the AMCs and you look at the GameStops, those are the barometer for, I believe, how the rest of the market will act on the margin. It's just retail is such a large component of this market now. And I believe that false start, buying back in, selling it, at some point, that stays permanent to the downside, in my opinion. And like I said, then we'll know that we can be constructive, our favorite word together, on the market. Let's talk about this situation with RH because I think it was really interesting. It's a $7 billion market cap company. They're doing what, $4 billion in sales. If we want to over index to what this company had to say on their quarterly call, I think that would probably be a mistake, except the way in which he said it. He obviously wanted to catch some attention. I think at one point he said this was a quote, I don't want to scare everybody, but he invoked the big short, Danny. Did you catch this situation? Because this was really interesting. Some of these quotes on that call were really worth taking note of. So what Gary Friedman, the CEO of RH, formerly known as Restoration Hardware, was referring to was a scene where Bill Miller was actually with Steve Eisman, and I was actually in the back with Porter, the day that Bear Stearns announced a billion-dollar buyback, and Bill Miller said how excited he was to be buying Bear Stearns here, et cetera. At that same time, the stock literally traded down 30 40 50% that day. Friedman's point was that don't look at what the Fed is saying. Watch what is actually happening. And he made a comment that how can they make these comments that inflation is going to moderate next year when he's paying for shipping costs that I just alluded to that he's paying for already four to 23. But he said this. He said, I've never been in my 22 years here more excited and I've never been more uncertain. And so maybe he marked the bottom in his stock since I pretty much marked the bottom in the stock market when I went from bearish to scared right at the tipping point. Now I'm both scared and bearish. But anyway, so he's just calling it like he sees it. And people aren't used to CEOs not lying to them on a conference call. So he's just being honest in what's out there. And listen, that's pretty much what this Procter & Gamble report from J.P. Morgan on the downgrade told us at the same time also. So speaking the truth. It might be more relevant to what's going on potentially in the housing market after such a weird period of time with all those migrations and some of the things that happened during the pandemic. And so I guess my point is it'll be interesting. We're going to know this soon enough over the next few weeks as we get into 
earnings season if this sort of stuff is confirmed. We have seen some earnings over the last few weeks. We saw Micron earlier this week. We saw Nike and Adobe. These are not small companies. Micron gave good quarter, good guidance. Nike, same thing. Adobe was disappointing, but I think there's some sort of things specific to their business and some of their competition. I learned so much during earnings season. Sometimes it doesn't make a whole heck of a lot of sense to trade too much in front of it until you get the news because if the news is the sort of thing that can help define a trend and then it broadens out within its own group and then if it's financials that usually get earnings season kicked off it's the sort of thing that could extrapolate from that makes sense if there's anything on jp morgan's call on april 13th when they report that confirms what friedman just said then you sell them and then you sell them again wouldn't you say so danny anything related to consumer you made a great point by the way and i should have thought about it on the rh again formerly known as restoration hardware you're right he's having issues on the supply side and all that stuff but he actually sells into housing so he's getting it from both sides. And I think to his point, that was a round out of his comparison to the big short. So to close that loop. So yeah, Dan, we're going to be in this time period for the next couple of weeks here where there's no Fed meeting unless there's an emergency Fed meeting. There's rumors going around that that might happen, but you have jobs number tomorrow and whatever. But then to your point, April 13th, you get Delta Airlines, Bed Bath & Beyond and JP Morgan. You got a meme stock in there, a major transportation stock and a major bank. Then the next day on April 14th, you're getting Citigroup and Wells Fargo, Morgan Stanley Goldman. And guess what? 15th is tax day. And we can talk about that when it comes just from a behavioral finance perspective. There's people that owe a lot of money. 21 was a good year for capital gains. And if they've come in and they've lost in 22, that's coming out of their account. Not going to try to predict that, but that's something to talk about. So a lot's going to be happening here. God help the stock market if they do a surprise rate hike. I'm just telling you that right now. I agree. So Dan, I have a question for you. I'm going to play guy here for a second. All right. I've been thinking about this for the last couple of days. What is the tipping point? Many times, if I were to tell you the market's going to go down 20% from here, what caused it? Was it a specific company event? Was it just the realization that inflation's here to stay, that the Fed is so hawkish that they don't care about the stock market? What, in your opinion, is that? Because I just don't know what causes a rally at this point and also what may cause a sell-off. Maybe I'm just wish casting right here. I think if a company like Apple, a really important company, were to have a material downgrade to their full year guidance, just something that they had to do it. And, you know, they did this a few years ago. I don't know if you remember this, but the stock was already getting killed. This was in 2018. January 2nd. So it might have been the first trading day of the year. After the close, the company came out and they guided down. And they had not guided down, Danny, in 10 years or something like that. They hadn't had a negative pre-announcement. I think it would take a combination of a company like Apple acknowledging what a lot of people think, that under the hood, the economy is not particularly strong. And when you think about the fact that, yeah, they're raising interest rates at 25 basis points, and they really haven't reduced the size of their balance sheet by any means, so they're really still accommodative and relative to inflation. We still have negative real rates. So I guess it would take some sort of corporate thing. And then the other one, and we talk about this a little bit with Tommy Vitor, Guy and I, is that they've done a really nice job on their podcast of just looking out and just saying, okay, what does it mean when two countries like Russia and Ukraine produce 30% of the wheat in the world and the dependency of large parts of the world who don't have the ability to stockpile? We could find ourselves in some really difficult situations in parts of the world where there's just massive food shortages. I know you brought this up when we were talking earlier. The same could be the case for energy. And so I think we've been through this period, 2020, 2021. Well, yeah, the stock market went up both of those years, but the Fed balance sheet just continued to increase. Their inability to recognize the potential for inflation to really spike and to stick around, that whole transitory thing, which I was on board with. You guys know that. We've been talking about that. That's the sort of thing where if there's corporates 
U.S. large multinationals that confirm it, that's when the stock market has to correct here. All right, so this is a bit wonky, but if you're following the stock market, you've probably heard this a thousand times this week that the yield curve inverted, the 210 spread. The 210 is the 10-year treasury versus the two-year treasury yields, and they went negative briefly. So right now, we're at three basis points or something. We're down from 155 basis points at its highs last year. The last time this happened was mid-2019, and it was followed by a recession. Again, that was induced by a black swan event, which was the pandemic, and obviously a bear market. I think it's really important to bifurcate these sorts of things. You can have a recession. It doesn't exactly mean that the stock market is going to go into a bear market, which is usually a 20% decline from its highs. The last time, the time prior to that, that the 210 spread inverted was back in 2006. And we know what happened in seven, the stock market topped out 2008, financial crisis, recession. Now, here's the deal. It doesn't mean that we're going to a bear market. It doesn't mean that we're going to have a recession. But there was a tweet from Jeff Gunlock, who is nicknamed the Bond King. And he said this on March 29th. Treasury yield curve spreads now 10-year minus two-year, three basis points. 30-year minus five-year, zero basis points. Right on cue. It doesn't matter this time. White papers are coming out. Don't believe them, okay? So he's issuing a warning, Danny, not to believe those who dismiss the yield curve inversion. What's your take? I agree. And listen, the Fed wasn't taking its balance sheet up to $9 trillion soon after the inversion of the yield curve. It was obviously brought on by COVID. So that was a one-off time period. Obviously, no one could have predicted COVID happening, but at the same time, no one could have predicted the amount of liquidity that was coming into the market to basically buoy it on top of the stimulus check. So that's unprecedented. So this, to me, is much more predictable. This is actually an orderly yield curve. This is telling you if the Fed keeps going, it's going to slow the economy down. The economy is dependent on debt. It has been for a long time. Debt will be more expensive. It will be more expensive for the consumer in every aspect. Therefore, it slows. It's actually a logical progression of what may happen. It just doesn't feel right now like we're in a recession. And that's not always how it happens. You don't need a recession first to have a yield curve invert. It is predicting what is going to happen and is projecting that. So I'm looking at the three-year versus the 10-year. We're now in the 15 basis point territory of inversion just because we're using the 210. And let's not forget again that the U.S. Treasury that the majority of the debt that's outstanding is between five and six years. And yes, yields are coming off a little here, but that to me is a big key. So I totally agree with that. And I think equity, people are not paying attention. The one thing we did during the big short time period, we were not fixed income people when it started, but we tuned into what was happening in fixed income early on. And we were able to translate that and what that meant. Certainly trading financial equities helped in doing that because that was the tools that you needed to see what was going to happen. I feel it's not as extreme right now, but I feel very similar to equity people not paying attention to the clues and the absolute rate levels that you're getting in the bond market. You need to start paying attention. You can ignore it right now, but it's coming. Well, Jeff Gunlock saying don't ignore it. Danny Moses is saying don't ignore it. Here was a headline, a story in Bloomberg that caught a lot of attention on Thursday. Risk of a 1970s style inflation shock is rising, warns Revan Howard, nearly $20 billion macro hedge fund. They are deemed to be extremely smart. This combination of high inflation, tight labor markets, and uncertain inflation expectation introduces the prospects of a 1970s style wage price spiral, which proved very costly to reserve during the vocal era. So what's your take? You've been talking about the potential for stagflation since last summer in 2021, Danny. What was the reason back then it hit your radar? Because of course, you were not thinking about 
global supply chains being further exasperated by a war that you didn't know was going to happen here. But that's clearly what's going on. And obviously, Guy has been saying this for years on Fast Money, that inflation's everywhere, just not where they measure it in the CPI. And he's been spot on. If you think of healthcare, you think of education and rents and that sort of thing. So my question to you is, are we here? Are we on the precipice of stagflation? And is that the worst possible thing for risk assets like stocks, but maybe not for hard assets? Yes, yes, and partially yes. So I would say that what I saw happening potentially, again, was a difficult comparisons as we were just accelerating through 2021 on the recovery of the 20 comparisons that I just mentioned. You can get a feeling that 22 wouldn't be as good. You can also get the feeling that prices were rising. And I was a big believer, if you remember, in wage inflation, the point you just brought up about the 1970s, that comparison. And when wages go up, it's a direct hit to margins. And you either fire people, play them off, but you don't lower their pay. So that was starting to happen. And so I was never, as you know, a transitory person. I don't know if I ever thought inflation could get this hot. I think a lot of the stuff were getting exacerbated by what's happening in Ukraine. And we were already at a tipping point. We're seeing what can happen to liquidity or lack of liquidity in the markets that can make oil and nickel and all these things move like they do. That's not healthy. What I saw coming, or what I think will come, if the Fed was going to have to become hawkish and they're going to have to raise rates here, which they do, you are going to force a slowdown. It may have happened anyway, but it's going to force a slowdown here. And I said this a couple of weeks ago. We have a piece of the 70s. We have a piece of the 80s. We got a piece of the 90s, the 2000s, and the 2010s. And now it's time for reversion to the mean on what it's like to live without the Fed having your back. It's that simple. It's the trillions of dollars that were being poured into the market that was the largest participant that we had, and it's gone. But let's be clear here. The Fed wants to slow things down, and they recognize that the stock market is going to be part of that because you just can't have one going one way and one going the other. And then you're saying, what do you want from me? That's my little shout out to Guy Adami, who's not with us this week, and he will not be listening. So we can actually say whatever the hell we want about Guy. One certainty that we can give on this podcast is that Guy, anything said here, unless somebody sees him on the street and tells him he will not be listening to so before we try to be a bit constructive, Danny, which is going to be a new theme that we end the podcast with, and obviously we're going to get to your final four picks a little bit, let's talk about what went on with the meme stocks here because I guess it's really just GME and AMC. There was a weird day this week where the meme stock machine, which was Robinhood, had a day where it literally went up close to 30% in one day. I think it's really interesting that it's basically round-tripping that entire move on the last few days. That seemed really funky to me, man. That felt like a good old-fashioned hedge fund trick into quarter end, find some heavily shorted name with really poor sentiment that hasn't done anything in a long time and just rip it. I think that's what happened there. But AMC and GME, the fundamentals of these companies continue to make absolutely no sense, but they caught a bid. Yeah. So what's funny, I was actually looking, I hadn't really paid attention to the market caps because with those two companies, they don't mean anything to me, but they're both exactly 13 billion, maybe 12.9 and 13.1, but they revolve around 13 billion. They both had the same exact moves. AMC went from 15 to 30 from March 21st to the 29th, and GameStop went from 90 to 180, 190, basically on the same time period. But here's what's crazy one has nothing to do with the other other than go get short sellers. Short sellers are evil. Let's go, guys. Let's go to it. No one talks about, some people do. When I say no one, regulators, the call option activity. I just want to put this in perspective. On March 28th, the AMC, Weekly, so the April 1st expiry, which is tomorrow, the 24 strike, 
that traded $6, traded 25,000 calls. The open interest before that was 3,000. For the people out there that don't understand what that means, basically take 25,000 calls, it equals 100 lot shares, so that's 2.5 million shares effectively at $6 on a 24 strike. The 25 line, 87,000 calls, the equivalent to 8.7 million shares at $5, open interest was 10. I could go on and on, the $30 line, 95,000. It's just insane to me. So that's where your volume is coming from. But we have seen this again and again. We've seen it on Tesla. We've seen it on AMC. And yeah, okay, that's someone that's actually buying it. Maybe it's not illegal. I feel like there's got to be a manipulation of some kind going on. And you know what's going to happen, Dan? They're going to fade right back down to where they were. We're going to see this again. So what got this AMC going was this Highcroft mining. And now they're into gold. And Adam Aaron's looking out for you and all this stuff. What did they do? Highcroft, they actually completed an at-the-money offering of 89 million shares post the financing that Sprott and AMC gave them at a buck 56. That stock is now over $2. There's 200 million shares outstanding. They've issued 100 million shares effectively in the last couple of weeks. So you're not a buyer. All right, listen, Dan, you got to hear this one. This just hits the tape as we're recording here. You're going to love this, okay? And I think we talked about this. Can't wait. Here's the headline. U.S. probes meeting between Activision CEO and options buyer. Remember this? Oh, I remember. So back in January, Microsoft made a $70 billion bid for game maker Activision. And here's the story. Activision CEO Bobby Kotick met with Alexander von Furstenberg in the week before Mr. von Furstenberg and media moguls Barry Diller and David Geffen bought options to purchase Activision shares at $40 each on January 14th. Now, again, you made this point a couple weeks ago. I rotted on it, Dan. That was deep, deep in the money. The options trade, which has generated an unrealized profit of about $59 million, was arranged days before Activision agreed to be acquired for $95 a share by Microsoft. Here's the deal, and I just got to say this. Barry Diller, I don't know the guy. I like his politics. I like the business that he built. And David Geffen, a media mogul. Very astute options trader. What the hell did these guys need the money for? How were they so fucking stupid that they wouldn't think it would stick out like a sore thumb? Maybe they didn't know any better. Maybe they just thought that Alexander was just really good. Man, hold on. Didn't know any better. They did an OTC with JP Morgan in the money calls. Come on. They knew better. But egos, Dan, and they're not going to get caught because the rich always get away with it. You just rotted on my rot. I love it. Sorry. <laughs> no, I love it. I love that it's coming out in real time. One of the things you say is that if we were to go into some sort of protracted bear market, think of all of the criminality that's going to come out that's gone on in so many different parts of the market. The crypto stuff is just dying to come out, but there's probably a lot of other stuff as it relates to SPACs. We saw that the SEC is coming out with some new rules about SPAC disclosures. Let me tell you what the new rule is, Dan. The new rule is that SPACs are done because the rule they're giving is that you can't give guidance any longer. If your safe harbor is gone on giving guidance, you're now an IPO. So why would anybody invest in something that can't give future numbers that whether they can or can't be hit? So they just ended the SPAC market basically today. All right. Most importantly here, let's try to be constructive on the way out. This was one thing that, Danny, I was thinking about a little bit. I get asked the question all the time, where'd you put your money? What stocks do you like? You keep hearing things like it's a stock picker's market. You got to roll up your sleeves. Rising tides are not going to lift all boats. Can I tell you something? I spoke in front of a group of financial advisors the other day in New York City, and everyone had their pads out. and They're looking for ideas and this and that, whatever. And I was like, you know what? People keep it simple. In a market like this, where we're seeing things that we've never seen before, at least in my career, or lots of people have never seen because they've only been in the markets for 10 years. I think you want to keep it simple. And I said, you know what I think you do? You do spoos, 
You do Qs and you do twos on a pullback. What do I mean by that? We know the concentration of the major names. We already talked about them a little bit. They're 25% of the S&P 500. They're 50% of the NASDAQ 100, the QQQ, and then the twos. I just don't think treasury yields are going up meaningfully from here. I know you think so. So if we were to have a sharp pullback at some point, retest those February, March lows, I'm just kind of legging into the spoos, the Qs, and the twos. All right. Rhyme sounds good to me, Dan. I don't know if I like the twos. I like the tens a little bit more than I do like the twos because I think we're going into a severe inversion on the curve. And I think the 10-year yields, I'm not saying they've seen their high. They may have seen their high from an intraday perspective because that's another volatile asset that trades all over the place. It's really wild. So, All right, man. Let's get to your final four picks. You had a heck of a week last week. Believe it or not, Danny, you're going to fall off your chair. So hold on here. I am in a pool at my cousin's firm. I've done this pool for probably 15 years. I don't think I've ever won it. I am number one out of 50 people. I have Duke beating Kansas in the finals. And I went three for three last week, okay? I opened one of those apps that are like crack for people who just like the action on a Saturday or a Sunday afternoon. So I put this in the chat or on the tape chat. When Miami was killing Kansas at the half, they were up like eight or nine and the line was Kansas plus one and a half. I took that and then I won on UNC and I won on Duke. And if I win this thing, man, I win this pool, will I get a little cred in your eyes? Totally. And by the way, I was a witness to that. I was on the same side of you. I was shorting Miami when they were playing Iowa State. That was the one loss I had in the Sweet 16. I gave out four picks. It was three and one. But my final was UNC Houston, which obviously didn't happen. But I'm still sticking by UNC. Let me tell you something. How about being CBS Sports right now? So in a three-day period, you got the following news. That Tiger Woods is probably playing in the Masters. Jim Nance is going to go from the final four of a Duke UNC semifinal game, probably the most epic college basketball game potentially of our lifetime with Coach K, maybe his last game. But that line is Duke favored by four. I think Duke has gone from a value stock to a little bit of an overvalued growth stock. I was on Duke early. It was one of my picks that I gave last week. UNC looks good. I have them to win the whole thing. And in the other game, Kansas laying four and a half against Villanova. Justin Moore going out for Villanova. This guy is third in rebounds, second in assists, second in points. That's a killer. And I think Villanova has been overachieving and Kansas looks like they're peaking. So I think the worst thing that happened to Duke was that not playing for a week. UNC looks like team of destiny to me. I could be wrong. So I like UNC and Kansas in those two games. Take the points UNC, lay the points Kansas. And then whatever the line is, I'm going to go with UNC will be favored by two or three over Kansas. If they end up meeting, I go with UNC since we won't be back on air until then. That UNC-Duke game has the potential to be one of the best college basketball games in the history of college basketball. So tune in, people. Actually going to be seeing our friend Mikel Jolet at the 930 Club in D.C., Airborne Toxic Event. Danny, have you ever been to the 930 Club? I have not. It's a cool, old, grungy spot. It's a little dirtier than Webster Hall or Bowery Ballroom in D.C. I saw Green Day there in 2016, so really psyched to see that. All right, listen, when we come back, we have Tommy Vitor. He is the co-host of Pod Save America, the co-host of Pod Save the World, and the co-founder of Crooked Media, so stick around. With CME Group's micro-sized futures and options, you can access the same transparency and liquidity of the benchmark contracts with less upfront financial commitment. Diversify your portfolio and manage your exposure with the flexibility of CME Group micro contracts in crypto, metals, FX, energy, and equity indices. Learn more about what adding futures can do for you at cmegroup.com slash micros. With CME Group's micro-sized futures and options, you can access the same transparency and liquidity of the benchmark contracts 
with less upfront financial commitment. Diversify your portfolio and manage your exposure with the flexibility of CME Group micro contracts in crypto, metals, FX, energy, and equity indices. Learn more about what adding futures can do for you at cmegroup.com slash micros. Tommy Vitor is a co-founder of Crooked Media, co-host of Pod Save America, and the host of the foreign policy-focused Pod Save the World. Tommy worked for President Obama for nine years, including serving as the White House National Security Spokesperson. Tommy Vitor, thanks for joining Guy and me on the tape. First things first, your podcast, I think, started in 2016. You guys left the White House, and it was really decoding a little bit of what was going on on the campaign trail in 2016. You guys were really great at making predictions, like Guy and me do, about the stock market as it relates to politics. So thank you for joining us, man. Thank you. Listen, it's a story about how to fail your way up. You just predict Hillary Clinton can't possibly lose, and then you'd start your own company. I give you guys a ton of credit because I started listening to podcasts, I want to say in 2015. It's probably when most of us started doing it. And I think in most verticals, whether it be sports or entertainment or politics, there had to be someone who braved the trail a little bit. And I think you and John Favreau and John Lovett and Dan Pfeiffer coming right out of the White House and doing this out of the gate and doing it at such an important time at the start of this administration. I think you guys started Crooked Media. Feels like the day Trump took office. Is that correct-ish? The timeline was basically Lovett left the White House 2011, 2012, because he came out to Hollywood to be a big shot and write a sitcom and get something on air on NBC. So he was successful there. Favreau and I left around March 2013 because we thought we wanted to get out of politics and move on with our lives and do something else. He moved to LA, I moved to San Francisco, and we both would just find ourselves on interminable group texts obsessing over the election or whatever was going on. So we linked up with Bill Simmons and did a show called Keeping It at 1600 at the Ringer for the 2016 election, where we arrogantly and sufferably predicted that Hillary Clinton couldn't possibly lose because Donald Trump was a clown, yada, 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 how smart are we? Proved catastrophically wrong. And we're, I think, filled with such overwhelming guilt that Lovett, Favreau, and I decided we cannot go back to our normal lives. Let's try to start a media company that the goal was to try to fix some of the broken conversation around politics. Because if you think back to 2016, you turn on CNN, and it would be Jeffrey Lord or some other Trump shill getting yelled at by three pundits from the left. Nobody really knew what they were talking about. And the whole thing was just insufferable. And so we wanted to be a little more substantive, a little more entertaining, and then focus on activism. Because if you're worried about what's going on in the world, we'll help you figure out what you can do about it. So, Tommy, as Dan mentioned, we do this podcast that you're on. The next podcast I listen to will be the first, and I'm sure yours kicks ass. But here's my question to you. Rutherford B. Hayes, Paul Newman, Tommy Vitor, who is the most famous Kenyan college graduate? Because you're ramping up that list, brother, with your podcast. Newman dominates. There was a point when I was working in the White House, Kenyan College, Gambier, Ohio, so small that it's technically a village. It's claim to fame as being outside of Columbus, <laughs> 1,600 kids. At one point, there were three of us working in the White House press office, which was very strange. But yeah, I think Newman has got everybody beat. Good news is I'm off their radar screen, so they don't ask me for money. So that's a nice thing. I'm telling you right now, that's coming. 
We're going to get to money in a little bit, but I will say this, guy, I have listened, and I think you know this, hundreds of hours of Pod Save America, Pod Save the World. These guys have a ton of great content, and they do it in a way where it is entertaining. And just so you know, Tommy, when we, Guy and I started a little over a year ago, Risk Social Media, we wanted to really do a lot of the same thing that you guys have executed on over the last five years. You've made politics tolerable. You've made it entertaining. And I think that last bit that you mentioned, giving listeners ways to express their views and they're using you as a sort of guidepost, I think on the activism front, these guys have helped raise millions and millions of dollars for all sorts of causes that aren't even political. They could be just crises. And so I think you guys using your platform like that is truly amazing. And the other thing is, is the common thread through all your podcasts is obviously politics. You guys obviously take a bent here, but you do it with a level of intelligence that guy and I can only hope to as it relates to markets. But let's get into it, Tommy. You and I have been DMing a little bit and your expertise And shout out to Steve H for connecting us, the man, the myth, the legend. We appreciate him. But your expertise in foreign policy is something that has not been something that people like Guy and I have had to lean on too much as we think about navigating markets, navigating the economy. We call Guy Nostradami around here. We had Ian Bremer from Eurasia Group on the pod in the first week of December. And Guy laid out three things that he thought were going to be dust-ups in 2022 that were underappreciated by market participants. First and foremost, Russia, Ukraine, he pointed to February, he pointed to the Olympics. Then, depending upon how that goes, China, Taiwan, and then some situation with Iran. So can you help us break these down one by one? Think about some potential outcomes, positive outcomes with the situation with Russia, Ukraine. And there's obviously the humanitarian issues of it, but there's a whole host of knock-on effects that are going to be affecting a lot of Americans going forward. I'm just curious, your take about the current set up right now and how we get out of this in one piece. Sure. Let me say, first time caller, long time listener. And if you guys don't work in lots of tangential references to like Led Zeppelin songs or whatever, I'm going to be disappointed. So I'm just throwing out there. So why don't we take this one by one? And I should say, what's the little caveat you always have to read? Investing involves risk. And if you invest based on anything I say, you're just a fucking idiot. Russia, I mean, stipulating that we're all guessing because one person is going to make this decision and it's Vladimir Putin. What we know is that the initial phases of this war effort did not go according to plan. I think every expert I read thinks that Putin was getting a little too high on his own supply, believing his own propaganda about being greeted as liberators and Ukrainian people welcoming them into the country. It sounds a little Dick Cheney-esque, if you ask me. And because they had these ridiculous political assumptions, they had a military campaign that led them to do things that were very stupid, like break off little pieces of their military, send them way ahead without any support, without air cover, without lines of communication. And so a lot of those units got romped. And so now what we're seeing is a stalemate, largely. And the first good news I've heard came this week, which was when the Russian defense minister said they will scale back military operations in the Kiev region. There were some soundings out of these peace talks that are happening in Istanbul right now that suggested there might be an opportunity to have a ceasefire, that the Ukrainians are okay with the process to determine the status of Crimea, that there might be some sort of direct negotiations between Putin and Zelensky over the Donbass region, which is the region in eastern Ukraine where the Russians have basically been invading the place since 2014. And so those are interesting soundings happening that suggest, okay, maybe there will be some sort of political solution to this problem. Now, I think we need to be very skeptical of any of those claims by the Russians. I mean, overnight, there were strikes on 
Kiev. I don't trust anything Vladimir Putin or his cronies say. As a general matter, there's reports that previous set of peace negotiators were poisoned, including Roman Obamovich, who is a Russian oligarch who owns the Chelsea Football Club. So that's the state of play. This thing could end soon. It could grind on for years. We just don't know. So, Tommy, I'm going to throw something at you. For a lot of people, uh, Ukraine is over the hills and far away, dude, if you know what I'm saying. (laughs) By the way, great song, originally written just as an instrumental, and then Plant put some lyrics down, obviously, Over the Hills and Far Away. It's not in the lyrics, which is one of those little tidbits, and it's off the Houses of the Holy LP. And then the oddity there, of course, is Houses of the Holy, the song, is on physical graffiti. I do this shit with you all day long. But I digress. Here's my take on this entire thing. He clearly, he being Putin, miscalculated. I think we all agree on that. But I think it's safe to say that if things appear to be going pear-shaped, he appears to be losing. I think in his mind, losing to Ukraine is catastrophic. However, losing to NATO forces would be heroic. Why do I say that? Because my sense is if loss is inevitable... It's better to lose to the entire world in the form of NATO than it is to Ukraine. So my question is, I think there's a really good chance he tries to pull NATO into this in some way, shape or form. Throw a missile into Poland, do something. Is that a tail risk in your opinion? My fear is that Putin views this as existential for himself. If you look at the history of Putin and warfighting, there was the first Chechnya war, which was 1994 to 1996. The Russians suffered a humiliating defeat. So when Putin took over and he had round two in Chechnya, he bombed the place to the Stone Ages over the course of about a year and just ground out a war that killed civilians and this horrible insurgency. I think when you see Putin go into Georgia, his effort there was to just completely destroy and humiliate Saakashvili in the Georgian in 2008. So I do worry that this guy is thinking to himself, if I look weak, I will get taken out. That will undercut my entire image as a strong man. Whether or not he wants to bring in NATO. I hear what you're saying. Putin would rather this conversation be about a fight between Russia and the US or the West than Russia and Ukraine. So there is some real concern there that they hit a supply line, that they use chemical weapons, something to draw NATO in. It does seem like he has really taken pains to not do any of those things to date. So I hear where you're coming from on this, but I'm not sure where his headspace is. Tommy, I listen to Pod Save the World, and you and your co-host, Ben Rhodes, who is a former national security advisor under Obama, you were the former national security spokesperson, and you guys debate these issues through just the lens of geopolitics, and you guys shed a lot of light on the humanitarian situation. And Guy and I find ourselves often in difficult spots when we're on CNBC or we're talking on our podcast. People are not there for that. Yeah, I have a political science degree. I haven't dusted that thing off in 25 years. And Guy, you spent some good time at Georgetown on some of these same topics, but it doesn't make us experts. And we don't really like talking about it. We ultimately have to talk about it through the lens of the global economy, through markets. That's what we're here to do. And I'm just curious, as far as you guys did a great job last week talking about this looming food shortage. You gave all the stats. 30% of the wheat globally comes from Russia and Ukraine. And these are things that you can't put your finger on right now. But when you think about what are the lasting implications of a dust up like this, that for a lot of people, maybe they're not reading about every day. We're talking about it because it's further exacerbating some of the issues that were highlighted through the pandemic, these supply chain disruptions, and a lot of these forces have caused inflation. So my question to you is, how do you think about this through a geopolitical lens, how this might 
realign global trade. We spent four years in the Trump administration with, it felt like a beeline towards a deglobalization push. We had a trade war with tariffs and a lot of those are still in place. It just feels like we could be on an economic precipice where deglobalization, higher price goods and services are here to stay, wage spiral, that sort of thing. I'm just curious what you guys are thinking about it or how you're thinking about it. Is this going to be a lasting situation? Because like you said, this might not end in a peace treaty. I think that the point you're making there is exactly right. We don't know what's going to happen in the near term, but I think we know for sure that this is going to have a long tail. One way that it has a long tail is you have the head of the United Nations World Food Program warning that the war is creating a catastrophic effect on agriculture and food prices, unlike anything they've seen since World War II. And the way that will likely play out is the Ukrainians can't plant their harvest. The Russians are a key source of fertilizer, and now they're going to be cut off from global trade. You got China talking about severe flooding and how that's really hurt their crops and they're going to have to buy more wheat. And so the way this will manifest is higher prices and poor countries not being able to afford food. For example, Egypt and Lebanon are over 80% reliant on Ukrainian grain. And so that means that people in these places will starve and it will be the poorest countries that are starving. But also food shortages like that usually lead to more political instability. That's one of the things you hear people talk about when it comes to climate change all the time. So I do think we need to worry about the long tail here in terms of what this will do in terms of just starvation and political instability in places that are not in Europe. The other piece of this in terms of trade is just going to be energy. You guys know this better than I do, but Russia, they sell oil and gas. They sell minerals. They're not an innovative country. They're not creating cool new technology. But for Europe, the Germans get half their natural gas from Russia, half of German homes use natural gas for heating, they're going to have to make a massive drastic shift in their energy consumption habits if they actually want to implement these sanctions. And another example is the UK. They've let London become a global washing machine for corrupt Russian oligarch money. There's a real question as to whether they will actually take steps to clean that up. Those are some of the things I think about. I mean, right now, Russia is supposed to be basically cut off from the international community. I think that the sanctions regime that have been put in place so far is actually not quite as robust as people would like it to be. I saw this morning, the ruble is basically recovered almost to where it was before the war. So there's a lot of work to do to really make this thing hurt for Putin. It's interesting, Tommy. During your time in politics, I guarantee that if you said the word inflation once, that might have been it. Never probably came across... Your radar screen didn't have to. It was never a problem. Well, I'm pretty sure it's a problem now for this administration. There's a midterm election in seven months, whatever it is. You put on any of these cable news networks, and a lot of these guys and gals lead with it. My question is, how devastating could that potentially be in these midterm elections? Because in my mind, this inflation problem is not going away anytime soon. As a matter of fact, I think it's going to be here for quite some time. Yes, potentially devastating. I think the biggest bias that people in politics have is assuming that people care about politics in this country. I think 40, 50, 60% of the country doesn't think about it, doesn't talk about it, doesn't care about politics, doesn't know what the hell we're talking about right now. They're just living their lives. They're watching the NCAA tournament. They're feeding their kids. So at the end of the day, You turn on the cable news shows and they're talking about, should the Democrats impeach Clarence Thomas? Who cares? The thing that people are going to be voting on is high gas prices, high food prices, all these inflationary concerns. And sure, we can debate 
whether real wages are keeping up with inflation and it actually is hurting people. But good luck convincing some regular person in Ohio that, oh, actually, your life is fine. And actually, your wages are keeping up with inflation. Like, that's not a message any Democrat or any politician wants to carry. So I am extremely worried about inflation. I'm extremely worried about high gas prices. I think some people look back to the Carter administration and the inflation then, stagflation then, and think that that was really what was catastrophic for him more than Iran or the hostage crisis or any other issues that are often pointed to. Tommy, the flip side of that coin is all these things we're talking about. I'm curious because I know how confused I am on a daily basis, but you look at the world, obviously, through a different lens. We're talking about all these things, mostly negative. And then you look up and Dow Jones is within an earshot of an all-time high. Stocks have completely recovered. Do you look at that and say, what's going on here? Again, you look at it through a different lens. Does it make any sense to you? Because I'll tell you flat out, it doesn't make a lot of sense to me. And I'm supposed to understand this stuff. Guys, this is why I'm glad I'm here. I need some help. I think politics and Wall Street are similar and that the goalposts are constantly moving and they're set by people who I'm not sure who's setting them. You look in politics, you think about the presidential contest. So you get the Iowa caucuses. There's all these examples McGovern in 72, Carter 76, Hart in 84, candidates take second place and they're perceived as the winner by some set of refs in the media. And it's just this expectations game. And then Wall Street is the same way. You have Facebook announcing $34 billion in quarterly earnings and the stock drops 25, 40, 50%. Like, how does that work? How does this make any sense? I don't know. How are we at an all time high? I don't get it. For the record, not that it matters. I'm a lifelong registered Republican, but I'm not one of these guys who just pulls the lever and walks away. I try to be somewhat informed and thoughtful about this, but I think it's important to put it out there. I will say this, though. What we've done in this country over the last 25 or 30 years, and this is a problem, and we talk about we don't want socialism. Well, guess what? We have it, because I'll tell you flat out, what we've done in this country for three decades now is we capitalize gains, like when things are going well, capitalism works, and we socialize losses. And that is unsustainable, and that's led us to the problems that we're having now. So I look at the market and say, this is all make-believe. You must look at it the same way I do. So it's not political. All the different administrations have done it, and at a certain point, we're going to have to get away from it. So just your thoughts on the wealth gap, which is at historic levels for 30 million people in this country. It's 1934 ish. And that's a problem. I heard you guys talking the other day about some of the problems that could come from taxing unrealized capital gains. Look, I lived in San Francisco for a couple of years. I had friends who worked at tech companies who thought that their entire paycheck was going to be options that ended up underwater and they just got screwed. And I'm not unsympathetic to that. But I do think that you have Elon Musk types complaining about this new Biden proposal. And if I were him, I'd be a lot more worried about pitchforks coming to the office than I am about going from an 8% effective tax rate to a 20% effective tax rate. I think this economic inequality is toxic and could create political instability. We've been talking a lot about Russian oligarchs these days. I think it's not a fair one-to-one comparison based on how people made their money, but there is a sense in many Americans have that there are American oligarchs who are pulling the strings. So yeah, it worries me a lot. So, Tommy, you just gave me a little hint here. Are you the guy who wrote that line for Obama back in 09 when he said to Jamie Dimon and all the bank CEOs, I'm the only thing standing between you and the pitchforks? Because that was brilliant, man. 
No, I do remember that. And talk about a frustrating period of time. Obama walks in the door, there's this massive economic crisis. The Bush administration through TARP and then the Obama administration through the auto bailout and everything else, doing everything possible to just rescue the global economy and pass a stimulus bill. And it's, at the end of the day, the most unpopular thing you could ever do. And then there's this series of bonuses that come through on Wall Street. And these guys just cannot have the presence of mind to be a little bit less selfish and not let that happen. Look, I mean, at the end of the day, it worked out fine for them. I want to go back to one thing because we were talking about energy policy before. And this is one that's really, I think, maybe right in your wheelhouse. We had a guest a few weeks ago named Halima Croft. I don't know if you ever catch her on CNBC, but she's an energy analyst and she's a former CIA agent. And she joined the CIA back in 01. And really, she joined a group that was focused on energy as a national security policy, getting off Middle East oil. Her insights are really fascinating. And you just mentioned Elon Musk when he's tweeting, as he did a few weeks ago, we need to be drilling more. So I'm just curious how you think about that. And has that conversation changed? We spent a lot of time talking about ESG. And it seems like this is really in our business, hot point right now. And I'm just curious how you're thinking about it. And you guys spend time reorienting what might be a new energy policy, clearly for Europe going forward, but how the US might play in that. I'm old enough now to remember all the different messages that Democrats have tried and failed in their effort to pass a cap and trade bill or a gas tax or to increase renewables. For a long time, the discussion was around national security. And I think that was kind of a rock war driven effort to lessen our dependence on the Saudis. And then that argument fell out of fold and it was more of a climate change focused conversation. But now we're back, hat in hand to the Saudis and a bunch of other Gulf autocrats or Venezuelans or the Iranians, get them to pump more. So I think that this is the biggest challenge in politics is short-term pain for long-term gain and convincing people that it's in their interest. There were the climate provisions, the tax credits in the Build Back Better bill, Joe Manchin shoved a knife through the heart of several times, were transformative. And I think there's a chance to still get some subset of those energy tax credits into a new bill. But the question is whether people will accept short-term price increases at the pump or any kind of sacrifice in the near term. And it's just the hardest thing to do in politics is to get people to suffer a little bit in the near term for the long-term good. Tommy, are you encouraged by what you see out there? Are we, in my opinion, as polarized as we've ever been? People are so dug in. I see it just in terms of my Twitter feed. It's fascinating. Just the level of vitriol and anger and division. How do you get through this? Because I just don't see it improving anytime soon. I'm as frustrated as you are. I think the extremes are probably more extreme. I think it's an asymmetric polarization. I just don't think you can compare AOC to insurrectionists or Marjorie Taylor Greene. AOC is a pretty thoughtful, progressive member of Congress who is talking in substance. The Green New Deal, you can like it or hate it, but it's a substantive, thoughtful policy document. It's not whatever culture war stuff is happening on the right. So I think there is some asymmetric polarization. I do think, though, the biggest challenge we all have is we are on Twitter, we're watching cable TV, and so those voices rise up and they get covered. And again, most of the country is just not listening to a single word any of those people are saying. And the question always becomes, how do you have the presence of mind to speak to that group of people that is just living their lives and has completely lost faith in government to deliver for them or is ultimately just going to vote for the person they think is the most compelling or the most honest or the most real. And so I think that's going to be the challenge in all of these elections going forward. And I think that's honestly why Biden won. 
people were like, this guy to me, more empathetic, a little more decent. Seems like he cares about the pandemic. Seems like he cares about me. So I'm going to vote for him. You guys obviously have a fairly progressive bent. And I think that during the Democratic primary, I think you guys interviewed almost every single candidate. Now, Biden, who you guys all knew pretty well, was the only candidate who did not come on your podcast, if I remember. I remember you guys really being fairly critical of what his platform was relative to some further progressive candidates on the left. But your view always was very simple. There's going to be good ideas everywhere. And if it helps move the far right more to the center, that makes a lot of sense. And now it's interesting to Guy's point is that you would think that Joe Biden is now the next coming of AOC. And so I'm just curious, how do you think going back to the midterms for a second? And obviously inflation is going to be one of the biggest issues here. But how do you think it's going to play out for progressive candidates? As you guys would say, there's still a lot of work to do. So is there going to be a bit of a bloodletting? And what does it mean for 2024? I think back to that primary. And I think the Biden people now, with the benefit of hindsight and some healing from the wounds of the primary, would, I think, be quite honest with you that things did not go according to plan in Iowa, New Hampshire. I think that what they look like fourth and fifth, respectively. And then finally came on strong in South Carolina. And so we tried to be honest about that. And I think probably pissed off some people in the Biden organization who were like, hey, we thought you were on our team. We were all Obama Biden together. Why you take shots at the guy? It's fair to feel that way. I'll be honest. My 2008 experience was I hated the people who were mean to us in the primary way more than I ever hated John McCain. Straight up some deeply held feelings. So it is what it is. We have great relations with them now. So whatever. For the midterms, I think it will be less a question of partisanship. It's just a question of how nationalized the campaign becomes and whether Republicans on the right are super fired up and ready to come out and enthusiastic and just turn out in a one or two percentage point greater number in aggregate, or whether the left gets his act together whether the gerrymandering didn't go as badly as all Democrats had hoped it was, or were able to hold on to some Senate seats in Georgia or wherever it might be. I am incredibly anxious about the midterms. I think that the path we're on right now, if you look at Biden's approval rating, it's not recovering. And I don't blame him for that. I mean, we're coming out of a once in a generation pandemic, followed by a horrific war in Ukraine, followed by God knows what's next. But it's tough right now. It's a tough setup. So here's where we flip the script. What do you got for us in terms of questions? I know you're one of those guys that takes copious notes and you're like, I want to ask Dan this and Guy that. You want to ask New York sports shit? Fire away, brother, because I'm ready for you. Okay. So here's a question. If you sit in your little analyst chair, you got like seven monitors in front of you, you're on a trading floor. You think to yourself, okay, the downside risk of what's happening in Russia and Ukraine right now, the worst case is nuclear holocaust (laughs) how do you do anything how do you not just turtle up and and hide tommy that's a great question there was a guy on fast money in the beginning in the halcyon days as i say and it was during the financial crisis and our host dylan radigan asked jeff Mackey, what position are you taking and he said the fetal position which is one of the great lines in the history of live television but you also learned something on wall street is You don't sell things when you fear the missiles flying or if they start to fly, you actually buy things because if they land, it doesn't matter. We're all dead anyway. And I know that sounds somewhat glib, but that's the way people think. So when you're talking about that type of tail risk, that typically leads people to buy things as crazy as that is. But to my earlier point, think about all the things we've been through over the last four or five years. You want to go back 13 years. 
the market seems impervious to everything. And I'm sure for people that don't do this for a living, people that have fallen on hard times, people that are living paycheck to paycheck, they say to themselves, how the blank is this going on when I'm having trouble deciding whether to pay my electric bill or feed my kids? It's mind boggling to me. And I want to tell you something. It's extraordinarily upsetting to me as well. Not only that, Tommy, you know the numbers. 80% of stocks are probably owned by 20% of the people out there. And so when Guy talks about people, they'll see a headline. And this was one of the things that used to drive me fucking batshit crazy is that every high in the stock market, Trump, in all caps, you're welcome. He's literally tweeting, you're welcome, about a new high in the Dow Jones Industrial Average. And it's like, who are you speaking to? Are you speaking to the small sliver of people that you just literally awarded a trillion-dollar tax cut to and they're just buying back their own stocks. I don't know if you ever saw this stat, but that trillion and a half dollar tax cut that put through in 2018, do you know how much stock U.S. corporations bought back in 2018 and 19? One and a half trillion dollars. It literally was equal to the tax cut. And it was absolutely crazy. And so for us, what we try to do is this. We understand that a lot of people are trying to build their nest egg. And they've been told that there's a couple ways to do it. You could buy a home and over time, it's going to appreciate. And then you can also invest wisely in the stock market over time. And so we're really respectful of all of that. But we also have a large part of our viewers on Fast Money on CNBC or listen to our podcast who are really in it a bit for the sport. Everything's been gamified in this day. And so for us, we don't find meme and some of the stuff that goes on in crypto. We don't find that interesting. We're going to call the bullshit there. We're going to help people navigate that sort of stuff. But in times where things are real, like during the pandemic in February of 2020 into March, the stock market sold off 35%. And think about that. You'd walk out on the street in New York City, and I don't know if you were in San Francisco then, it was a ghost town. It really felt like, and Guy and I would say this, if the Fed didn't do what they did almost immediately in late February of 2020, we might have been in a real credit crisis. It might have looked like something, the combination of the post-dot-com era plus the global financial crisis and wrap it up with all the health issues involved in that and the unknown. So in a lot of ways, we averted a black swan event. That's a term you'll hear all the time as far as market participants will talk about black swans. They don't happen too frequently. The financial crisis was not a black swan event. We could all see it happening. Way I see is we try not to be hyperbolic. We try not to be the guys yelling and screaming and hitting buttons and everything like that. For us, it's keeping a level head when things are most crazy. I think that's a longer form answer of what Guy just told you. All right, now I got one for you, Tommy. You can only pick one. I want you to give me the answer. I don't want any of this hemming and hawing shit. Only one thing can happen over the rest of your lifetime, and I hope you live to 100 years old, but only one of these things can happen. Red Sox win another World Series. Bruins win a Stanley Cup, Celtics win an NBA championship, or the Patriots once again win the Super Bowl. You got to pick which one. Before you answer, I'll tell you exactly what it is. You want the Bruins to win a Stanley Cup. If you asked me when I was 12 years old, yes, the Bruins were the number one team in my life. Thanks to the Sunday ticket, I am all football all the time. Guys, baseball is boring. I can't watch nine innings for four hours with 17 pitchers. I can't do it anymore. I love the Red Sox, always will. Saw them beat the Dodgers out here in LA. So I've been to a World Series clinching game. I never went to a Super Bowl, even the Brady era. That is on me. I will forever live in shame because of that. Easy answer. Can I ask you one more question? Yeah. All right. So I'm a dummy. I barely understood what puts and calls are, if that's even the correct terminology. 
I worked in government for the first 33 years of my life. I was broke as hell. I didn't have a savings account until I was 32. I had a thrift savings account, which is the 401k in the government, put in 50 bucks a month. I left government. I had got a new job, started a company, started making a little more money, opened a Vanguard account in 2013. I wasn't like GameStop guy, but I found it interesting. I was like, okay, now I have some skin in the game. It's like gambling a little bit. All of a sudden, you care about the Mac football game on Tuesday nights, whatever it is. Everyone tells you, you're a dummy. Don't bet on individual stocks. Buy index funds, the S&P 500. But if you look at those funds, there's always four or five stocks that are propping up the whole thing. How do you make sense of that if you're a dummy like me who's trying to figure out what actually is the smart thing to do? First of all, you're brilliant, number one. But in terms of investing, when we started Fast Money, it started as a segment all through 2006. And when I first started, I said to the producers, we want a TV show that people turn the sound on to listen to, number one. And we don't want to underestimate people's intelligence and their want to learn. We want to demystify what has historically been extraordinarily intimidating, arcane, boring, and we want to make it accessible. So I think to a certain extent, we've succeeded. We've taken the intimidation out for people, and now people are asking the questions you're asking right now. So Dan is better equipped, but at least you're asking the right questions and you're looking at it through the right lens. Guys, September 18, you and I are sitting on the set of the NASDAQ in Times Square, and all of a sudden, I literally was just doodling as I doodle on our rundown for the show, and I came up with MAGA, hashtag MAGA, Microsoft, Apple, Google, and Amazon. We started talking about it, and then what, a year later or something, Trump busted out in one of his dipshit meetings with all these guys that he brought into the room, and they're all praising dear leader and everything like that. So I was early on that, and so here's my answer, Tommy, is that... I would say spoos, cues, and twos. That's what you want to do here. And I'll tell you what the spoos are. They're the S&P 500. The cues is the triple Q, the NASDAQ 100. And twos is basically two-year treasuries. If I'm a guy who's actively pursuing a career in something else, but I understand that I need to be invested, and I understand that there's going to be periods of volatility, I want to buy the S&P, I want to buy the QQQ, and I want to buy treasuries. I don't think treasury yields are ever going up meaningfully from current spot, and they've gone up a lot over the near term. And that's how I diversify. So to your question about those four or five or six stocks, these massive technology companies with basically have monopolies. They have huge moats as it relates to their products or services. They have great managements. And then they also have just a shit ton of cash and no one's ever catching them. No one's ever catching them. So those stocks make up about 25% of the S&P 500. So an index of 500 stocks, five make up 25% or so. And then they make up about 50% of the NASDAQ 100. So here's what I would say is that if we were to go and dip again and the NASDAQ was going to be down 20%, I'd start buying the QQQ or the SPY. And the reason there is, is that we know that those big names are going to lead them back up. Eventually they will make new highs. And then all the shit, all of these innovative names that were screaming during the pandemic, the Zoom and the Peloton and all those other stuff, they'll eventually go back up. They're never going to go back to their highs. And then you get the benefit of those doubling off the lows. So that's my quick take. Guy, you got any financial advice for Tommy? I think you're spot on. I would say this. I know how intimidating it can be. Don't be intimidated by it. You said it earlier, make it fun, make it enjoyable. And I think that you'll flip the switch in your mind. And I'll say this, Rutherford B. Hayes might've been the first president of the United States from Kenyon College. But I'm telling you, if you play your cards right, and you get into this game, you could absolutely be the next. And I'm actually being serious because you got the chops to do it. 
Guy, I've done too many drugs in my life, my friends, for that to be a possibility. Doesn't seem to be a problem. Think about the things that Trump said in that van. That won him the effing election. I'm telling you right now, that Entertainment Tonight video that came out, he was going to lose the election before that. That won him the election, I'm telling you, guaranteed. Hillary four-cornered it. She went all University of North Carolina and Dean Smith shit. She pulled in the tents and it won the election for him. Tell me I'm wrong, Tommy. Tell me I'm wrong. Listen, we might have to agree to disagree here. But what I'm taking away from this is I shouldn't sign up for Seeking Alpha and do whatever investor guy 420 says about the triple bagger penny stock. No, don't do that. And you can now DM Guy and me, and we're going to keep you away from all those shills. All right, I have one last question for you, and I'm sure you get asked about Obama all the time. And I think the history books are going to be very kind about his leadership and what you just mentioned coming into a very difficult time and the divisiveness that Guy mentioned that really bubbled up in the eight years that he was in office. What's one thing that you could tell people you had this amazing access to him and his administration and his leadership? What was one of the biggest takeaways that you would say from his leadership style that has really been something that's really affected your life and how you're moving forward? Here's the thing that always bugs me about the conventional wisdom around him was that he was this aloof, professorial, arrogant guy who didn't do the political work. I find that so frustrating because what they're getting at was that he didn't want to hang out with members of Congress. Have you guys ever met a member of Congress? Do you want to hang out with these people? They're insufferable. Horrible group of people with a few exceptions. But in practice, I was lucky enough that I started working for him in 2004 on his Senate campaign. I met him, I met his wife, I got to know the girls. They're just good, decent people. And when my dad died, the first person who called me was Barack Obama. And he didn't have to do that. It was some pissant little assistant press secretary in the White House. And he just was a good guy. And he was there for me when something bad happened. He was there for people on staff when they were having a hard time. I never once saw him yell at someone or dress them down or make them feel belittled and small despite being in the highest stakes job in the world. doesn't mean he was perfect. doesn't mean he was always right. He screwed stuff up. You can be arrogant. You can be full of yourself. Whatever. All that stuff is fair. It happens to the best of us. But I think the thing that I'm most proud of with him is for eight straight years, he was in it for the right reasons. There was no question of some sort of scandal that questioned his motives or whatnot. And so I'm incredibly proud of that and the human being I got to work for. And we should constantly question and criticize policy choices. I could list a million mistakes we made over the course of eight years. Politics is a human endeavor. And he was a good guy working as hard as he could, doing it for the right reasons. And so I'll be proud of that. Tommy, you're extraordinarily thoughtful. We truly appreciate your time. I'm thinking there's some subsection of Pod Save America. Maybe we go Pod Save Investors or something. Anytime. The three of us can sort of riff. I would love that. Seriously, thanks for joining us on the tape. Continued success. Thanks, Tommy. Thanks for having me, guys. Appreciate it. Thanks again to our presenting sponsors, CME Group, iConnections, and FactSet. If you like what you heard, make sure you hit follow and leave us a review. It helps other people find the show, and we also want to hear from you. Email us at contact at riskreversal.com. Derivatives are not suitable for all investors and involve the risk of losing more than the amount originally deposited and any profit you might have made. This communication is not a recommendation or offer to buy, sell, or retain any specific investment or service.